So 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking tonight from verses 13 through to 21. We're continuing a a kind of mini three-part series looking through um, just this one chapter. It's an amazing chapter of the Bible. Um, And if you weren't here last week, we saw that this letter was written to Christians who are suffering, Christians who are facing opposition, Christians who are facing persecution for the sole reason that they follow Jesus. And these Christians are tempted really just to give up on the gospel. So Peter writes this letter to remind them and to encourage them to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And we saw last week that one of the ways he wants to encourage them to stand firm through their sufferings is to get them to look forward to what Jesus has bought for them, to look forward to their imperishable inheritance. Peter describes Christians as being exiles that are journeying to this promised heavenly home that the blood of Jesus has bought for us. This is what we are guaranteed to inherit. Now, the dominant picture in Peter's mind, and and most definitely, certainly last week, but definitely this week, is God's salvation story of the Old Testament, and that is the, the Exodus story. Peter uses that as an illustration to describe the Christian salvation. And it makes sense that he does because if you remember from last week, he said in chapter 1 verse 10 that the Old Testament, the prophets, prophesied through the Spirit of Christ for our benefit. So it makes sense if the Old Testament was written for our benefit by the Spirit of Christ that he would use that in his letter. So by way of introduction tonight, before we actually look at verses 13 to 21, Uh, Let me remind you of the Exodus story for those of you that haven't seen the Charlton Heston film uh, or are unfamiliar with the story. It's the story of how God rescued his people from slavery. It was thousands of years before Jesus. The, The nation of Israel, they were meant to be God's chosen people. They were chosen to bless the world. Through them, salvation was going to come to the entire world. Um, But they ended up being slaves Uh, to the mighty Egyptians and oppressed by the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. But God had a plan to save them. He had a plan to save them through his chosen rescuer, Moses. Uh, And the way that God delivered his people out of Egypt was to send 10 deadly plagues that, that just devastated this nation, the mightiest nation on earth. And it broke them so much that it caused Pharaoh to let the Israelites go free. After numerous warnings, God hit Egypt time and time again. And the tenth and final plague, that was the one that really really broke Pharaoh. That was the most devastating plague that he sent on the Egyptians. And it was a plague in which uh, God said that he was going to pass through the land of Egypt and he was going to kill the firstborn son in every house. But there was a way to avoid this. The Israelites were told that they were to find a perfect, spotless lamb. And they were to kill it. And they were to paint its blood on their doorposts. And that night when God would pass through the land, the only thing he would look for to pass over someone and to not bring judgment upon them would be to see the blood of this perfect lamb on the doorposts. Uh, And those who didn't have the lamb's blood faced the judgment of God and, and it broke Pharaoh and he let the people go uh, and they were 
set free. And, and God told them to do this and to remember this occasion. And he said that actually it's important that when you do this, you dress in a particular way. I want you to dress like you're ready to leave because this is going to be an occasion that you are going to remember for your entire history. It's a celebration that the Jews called the Passover. And God led them out of slavery and he led them into a promised land. But the problem the Israelites faced was that before they reached this promised land that they were to inherit, they had to journey in the wilderness as pilgrims. And that was a really hard and difficult time. If you were to read uh, what the book of Exodus and Numbers describe about that, you'll see that they didn't do too well. And they hated it a lot of the time. And often, more often than not, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to being slaves. But God told them, stick with me. And he gave them the special law by which they were to live, the Ten Commandments. It was to make them distinct from the rest of the other nations. They were to be his holy nation, his royal priesthood. Here's how an ancient, ancient Israelite would have described their situation. This is really important for understanding uh, what we're going to read. An ancient Israelite would have described their situation like this. I was once a slave, but God rescued me and his anger passed over me because he saw the blood of the lamb. Now I am his, and as I journey to a land that he has promised me, he has called me to live for him. Does that sound familiar? That's what a Christian would describe their life as. That's how a Christian would describe their salvation. And that is what Peter is going to say in these verses. We are journeying to this promised heavenly land, but we're not there yet. We're still in the wilderness. And the big question we're going to look at tonight then is, how do we keep going? How can we live now as God's chosen people until we reach that promised inheritance? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. Peter writes this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. But before we look at this passage, let's just pray together and ask for God's help. Father, we want to hear your voice tonight. Lord, as we look at your word and study it, we do not study uh, just text, but this is the word of God. So Father, may we not just be listening but not hearing. Help us to take in what you are saying, to take seriously the commands of your word. Help us to understand the realities of the gospel and may our hearts be affected with love and wonder and praise and joy for Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name, amen.
Okay, so how are we to live now as pilgrims, journeying towards this heavenly uh, home? How are we to live amidst the wilderness and the difficulties of suffering and opposition that these Christians that Peter was writing to were facing? Well, I've tried to sum it up in one sentence. I've got it on the inside of your service sheet. No three-point alliteration uh, tonight, I'm afraid. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But this is the best I could do. This is what Peter says we are to live like as Christians. Set your hope fully on your future salvation and live holy lives now, knowing that you were set free by the imperishable blood of Jesus. That's my sentence that I think sums up what we are to get from tonight's passage. Three stages. Look forward, set your hope fully on your future salvation. Look to how you live now, live holy lives now, and look back to the salvation, to the cross of Jesus Christ. So, first part of the sentence then. Set your hope fully on your future salvation. Verse 13. He begins verse 13. Therefore, uh, we are told in um, preaching class that you've always got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? So what is the therefore, therefore? Uh, He's talking back to what we saw last week, where Peter talks about this wonderful uh, inheritance, the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore... Because you have this heavenly home that is guaranteed for you, prepare your minds for action. Now, in the original Greek, the term prepare your mind for action, uh, I think it's footnoted there in your Bible, is literally gird up the loins of your mind, uh, which is strange to me because that's not where I usually associate my loins to be. Um, but, but it's a reference that Peter's making. It's kind of a, a, a metaphor of um, the kind of clothing that people in the ancient world would wear. So everyone back then in Peter's time wore kind of long flowing robes, including the guys which isn't so weird to us as Scotsmen because we know real men wear skirts. Anyway, they would wear these long flowing robes and if they had some tasks to do, they would tuck their robes into their belt, which was a sign that they were ready for action. If they were late for the bus, then they had to gird up their loins so they could make it on time uh, to the bus or, um, well, the ancient equivalent, the camel. Um, Interestingly enough as well, it's the same phrase that's used in Exodus 12, where it describes the Passover event, where God says to his people that they are to gird up their loins, to be ready to leave the land of Egypt. So Peter's saying, get ready. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for some serious mental commitment. Are you ready? We're just zoning out already. What do we need to do this for? Why do we need to get our minds ready? We need to engage our minds for. We need to have them engaged so that we can set our hope fully on the grace to come. We need to place all our hope as Christians on our future future salvation. And that's really, really hard to do. So in order to do that, we've got to get our minds in gear to be able to do that. Just to help us understand what he's saying in verse 13, let's think, what would the opposite of verse 13 look like? What would the wrong way to live as a Christian be? Well, I think it would be not to get our minds and gear toward the future. It would be to say something like this. Well, you know, I know that I've been saved. I know that Jesus has rescued me. So that's kind of done and dusted. But in the meantime, I've got to concentrate on the difficulties that I'm facing in life now. I've got to focus on on what's happening in my life now. 
That's not preparing your minds for the future. That's letting your minds be lazy. And you know what happens if we start to do that? That can seem quite reasonable, but if we start to do that, then your hope in life as a Christian, the thing that you hold on to, to to help you and to sustain you, will not be your future with Jesus. Rather, it'll start to become something else. The thing in life that that you feel you need to help you get through, you'll put all your hopes in something like your marriage or your desire to get married or that career promotion that you want or that reputation that you desire or that house that you'd like to buy or that academic success that that you long for or that family that you dream of. You know, it's not that these are wrong things. These are good things to want and desire, but they cannot be the basis for our ultimate hope as Christians. Because here's here's what will happen if, if one of these things do becomes our ultimate hope as Christians. Slowly but surely, Jesus and his gospel will start to become marginalized in our lives. And worse than that, you'll start to get angry, disenfranchised, annoyed with Jesus. Because he's not your hope, something else is, and you want that. You see, what we build our future hope on will dictate our present course of action. What we build our future hope on will dictate our present course of action, especially when we go through the hard times of life. Think about, you know, like an athlete. Think about a sports person um, like Andy Murray. I'm sure that one of his hopes as a tennis player was uh, to do well, to to win Wimbledon. And, And if that's his goal, if that was his aim, if that was his hope, then that's going to drastically affect how he lives his life. He'll be vigilant in his training. He'll be careful about what he eats. He'll be persistent in practicing. It'll be tough. It'll be hard. But he's got this end goal that he'd be aiming for. Future hope dictates present action. Um, The only problem is that the things that we often put our hope in are so temperamental and weak And often when we achieve things like that, they let us down. But if we are Christians, if we really are exiles, this world here, this is not our home. Our hope is our future home, our permanent home with Christ. The grace that is to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what we must keep our mind's eye fixed on. And that's the best motivation to live the best life now. That's the most solid anchor that we can have that that will help us through life's storms and difficulties because as Peter said, that is imperishable, unchanging, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. It is a guarantee. So we've got to be mindful of this every single day. We need to do that if we are to keep growing as Christians. Otherwise, we could start to fall away. We could start to turn back. And it requires real mental commitment. Isn't it interesting? If you, if you want to think about heaven, uh, Peter's saying that uh, people who think about heaven are those who are engaging their brains, not those who are disconnected. So here's how we listen to Peter's word in verse 13. Throw yourself wholeheartedly into working at knowing Christ and his gospel better. Here is how we engage our minds and do that. We throw ourselves into knowing Christ and his gospel better. Work at it. Church, Bible, small groups, prayer, songs, books, whatever it is that that you can give to feed your knowledge of the gospel. Because the more you know of him, 
the more wonderful you'll see he is. And the more you'll want to know him better. Eternity with Christ is such a wonderful prospect. Not because of where it is or because of how long it is. But because of who he is. He is the infinite fountain of love and that joy inexpressible. Oh, how I want to know that. Peter saying, get your mind in gear. Let's start thinking about this. Okay, we're with you, brother Peter. We've, we've engaged our minds. Now, what have you got to say to us? This is his second point. He says, live holy lives now. Look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So how are we to live now? As the key words clear to say is the, is the word holiness. As those journeying towards this, this promised inheritance, we are to increase in these two areas, hope and holiness. We need both. See, if we just tried to be holy without the hope, we'd become legalists, self-righteous. If we just tried to grow in hope, but not holiness, then it wouldn't be genuine, it would be fake. So holiness, well, what is holiness? Verse 16, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Leviticus. Um, that is the law book that the Israelites were given after they were set free from uh, slavery in Egypt. Uh, and it's the command that God gives to the Israelites, be holy for I am holy. And there and throughout the Bible, holiness is seen as this. It's seen as being set apart. It, it, holiness, it's the attributes of God that, that set him apart from everything else. It's his moral perfection. It's his beauty. It's his majesty. Um, it's his joy. It's his love. It's everything that makes God distinct. Holiness is is the godness of God. And if you were to read uh, Leviticus 19, where Peter gets this from, you would see what that looks like. Uh, it's tied up with justice, mercy, kindness, and love. Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting, isn't it? That's from Leviticus, the book that uh, Christians often fear to tread and atheists love to quote. But there's your basic principle for holy living right there from the book of Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we don't have to obey the law like the, the, the laws of Leviticus because they were for a certain group of people, the Israelites, in a certain time. Uh, but it is interesting to note that although we don't obey that, uh, Peter and Jesus recognize that the same moral principle has been key for God's people all throughout the ages. We are to be distinct from the rest of the world. We are to be distinct. We must be like God our Father. Be holy, for I am holy. Why? Because we're his children. We're not the slaves to sin anymore. Verse 14, we are obedient children. So we're to be like our Father. We, we're, when you came to trust and follow Jesus. Something amazing happened. Peter describes it as a new birth. You became permanently linked to God by his Holy Spirit. It's as if you've got the DNA of God uh, in you. We pursue holiness, therefore, not because we need God to accept us, but precisely because he has already accepted us. We are his children. 
And we want to fight off sin. We want to be godly, not to appease the wrath of a dictator, but because of the love of a father. Children want to obey their father, for the most part. Um, They want to obey if they love their father. God's given us this way to live, not to control us, but to help us. So Peter says, look, be like him. He's your father, your obedient children. And don't, don't go back to your old way of life. You know, that's what these churches would have been tempted to do that he's writing to. I mean, think about this. They're facing suffering. Why? Because they follow Jesus. Maybe life for them was a bit easier before they decided to be Christians. And following Jesus is hard. They're in the wilderness of difficulty, of suffering, of opposition. And they're tempted to just give up, to go back. That's what the Israelites were tempted to do after God rescued them. They were tempted to go back to slavery. Peter's saying, don't be lured back to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't give up because this is hard. And trust me, this is so hard to do. Don't do it because it's not who you are. Don't be lured by the lust of ignorance. If we love him, we must be like him. We must be distinct. And that means we must be distinct in how we use our money. We will not be greedy and hoard it for our own comforts, but we will give it away generously and freely because God himself is like that. He gave up everything for us, namely his own son. It means that we must be distinctive in how we speak. We will not speak ill of others and engage in gossip and belittle them to feed our pride and arrogance because he did not speak ill of us but rather called us to himself with tender words of mercy and love, even though we were his enemies. It means we will be distinctive in how we think about others. We will fight off lust and hatred and anger for others. We will not objectify other human beings because God loves them and made them in his image. And that is not how he treats humanity. Think about it. Just think just now. What are the ways you need to be distinct in what you say, in what you do, in what you think, whether that's in the school playground, at university, or at work? How are you distinct? You know, practically tonight, on the back of this passage, let's pray two things tonight on the back of this passage. One, ask God to give you a longing for Christ and eternity with him. And secondly, ask him to show you the areas of your life that you are not being holy and distinct in. Peter's saying, let's pursue this. Don't be lured back by the false promises of that past life. You know, one of the great lies that Satan feeds Christians today is that holiness is boring. It's not, it's hard, but holiness is ultimately for your joy. To be holy is to be like God. And so this is not being boring or stiff or cold or rigid. There is no one happier. There is no one more content and filled with love and wonder and peace and security as God himself. And he wants us to experience that by being like him. And although we do this, we approach with the intimacy and the obedience of a child. We nevertheless also recognize that it's what we were learning about this morning. He's our father, but he's also our judge. Verse 17, Peter says that. This talks about the importance of fearing God. This is not the kind of fear that fears abuse or abandonment. This is a healthy fear, a fear that recognizes that God, although our father, is nevertheless someone that we do not mess with. 
He is big. We are small. We revolve around him and he does not revolve around us. And the more we get that concept, the more we have that reverence and that awe for who he is, the more we will increase in holiness during our time time of exile. Okay, final point. Last part of the sentence. We've got the two imperatives. Set our hope fully on the future and be holy. That's what we are to act like as pilgrims on our way to glory. Here's the thing though, like I said, this is hard. And this is not something you're ever going to fully achieve. You're never going to be at a point where you think, that's my hope sorted, set on the future. That's my holiness sorted, I'm like God now. I think most of us would like to be better. So how do we do this? How can we do this? Well, we need a motivation that will help us to live this way. This time, Peter doesn't want us just to look forward, but he wants us to look back. Not back to our old selves, not looking back to slavery, but back to our salvation. Verse 18. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, this is so key to everything that we see tonight in this passage. Here's how we keep going in holiness and hope. We look back to the moment that Jesus shed his blood to pay for our ransom because every single one of us here tonight in this room are sinners and without Jesus Christ, we were under the just condemnation of God. We were under the wrath of God. We had a debt to pay off that we could not pay off with our good deeds could not fix the problem because we are the problem. But Jesus came, God's son, he came into human history to to wipe that debt clean, to pay the ransom price, to bring us back to God, to make objects of his wrath, his children. And that is what he achieved as he was crucified on the cross. That's why we sing the song, songs like the one we sung before this sermon. But the wondrous cross, as he died, And as he shed his blood on that cross, the anger of God that has been stored up for all our sin, past, present, and future, was poured out on him so that it would never have to touch us so that we could be free. So we wouldn't be slaves to sin. So that we could be redeemed, to use Peter's word. Think back to that Exodus story. That final plague of the Passover. The Passover was meant to be a picture of the cross. That's why it's there. It's a real event. It really happened. But it's meant to be a picture of the cross. And that's why Peter compares Jesus in verse 19 to a perfect spotless lamb. The judgment of God. God went through the streets. What was he looking for? To pass over. He wasn't looking at the Israelites' good deeds. He wasn't looking at how well they knew their Bibles, how many times they went to church. One thing God was looking for, for his judgment to pass over them, and that was the blood of a perfect spotless lamb. What does God look at us? What does he want from us? What do we need for his judgment to pass over us? Not our deeds, how many times we've gone to church, how many times we've prayed. He looks for the blood of the perfect spotless lamb of God, which is his son. That's why we strive for holiness. God rescued us from the slavery of sin, not so that we could go back, but so that we could press on 
towards our inheritance, fighting off sin as we journey and earnestly keeping our eyes fixed on that promised salvation that we are guaranteed to inherit. Think about this before you start to look back and wonder if the lust of ignorance and the slavery of sin is a better option. What greater thing could God give you to prove that he loves you than the blood of his son? Think about the most precious thing that you have or own or have seen. Um, I remember once I went, I was in Fort William. I was holding a bottle of 6,000 pound whiskey. Uh, and I was freaking out because, as my wife will tell you, I'm very clumsy. Um, and so I was very careful with how I was holding this whiskey. I actually didn't want to hold it that long because I knew I probably would drop it. But think about what, what you know that's so precious and valuable that, that you would be so careful with. Parents, are not your children the most precious thing in the world to you? What is infinitely more precious to God the Father than all the perishable jewels of this world? Is it not his own son? Is not the blood of the Son of God more precious than anything else in existence? And yet God was willing to let his blood be spilled as the cruelty of the human beings that he created hammered those nails into his son's hand. He gave up his son to be tortured and killed to save the very ones who drove those nails into his hands. He was willing to let the one that he loves most for all eternity to be crushed for our sake, to pay that ransom. God bought you here tonight as a Christian with the highest price possible, the blood of Jesus. Does that move you? Is that just too overly familiar? You see, the more that fills us with wonder and praise, the more that moves us, the more you'll be assured of your future hope, and the more you'll be motivated to holy living. That's why we sing songs in church about the blood of Jesus. I used to always think that was a really weird thing, especially if you're new to church and you're coming in, you're singing about the blood of Jesus singing songs about being cleansed by the blood of the lamb. It's strange, especially if you're a vegetarian. But we sing about this because it's by his blood we are redeemed. And the the effects of that blood have lasted and will last for all eternity. The precious things of this world, like gold and silver, are nothing in the end but rust and dust. But the imperishable blood of Jesus will not fade. Salvation is eternal through him, which is why Peter doesn't leave us at his death, but finishes by taking us to his resurrection and glory and finishes with the word that we started with, hope. That's what we have through Christ. And one day all the redeemed will gather around the throne of Jesus and will sing the song, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Father, we want to We want to live as obedient children, as your children during the time of our exile. We are not home. Help us to remember that that we have a home, we have a hope, we have a future that is kept for us. And you're guarding us until we reach that promised inheritance. Help us then, Father, to fix our eyes on it, to throw ourselves into girding up the loins of our mind, into thinking about the future that we have so our hope may ever increase. Help us to be obedient to you and to treat you as a father and yet with reverent fear and awe, to respect you and to love you and to live a holy life because that's how you want us to live. And we know that you 
are for our joy. So help us to share in your joy by being like you, by being holy. And Father, we pray that just you would give us a bigger understanding of the cross, that we would look back to the blood that Jesus shed for us to pay that ransom price, that imperishable blood. May we look back to it and may our hearts be filled with wonder and praise so that we can have the certainty of hope and the motivation of holiness. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, Lamb of God. Amen.